Welcome to MuggleCast episode 427. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. We're going to continue discussing Sorcerer's Stone. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just thinking about how tired Laura is and she powered through with that. And I'm Laura. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm here. I'm ready. I've actually been very excited for this episode and this conversation. Yeah, yeah. We have a good discussion set for today the secrets of book one all the little things that ended up playing a larger role later on in the series and some other interesting tidbits from the very beginning of the book i said i think last episode that i uh, reread sorcerer's stone and just going through that first chapter i was like wow there's a lot of stuff to talk about in here yeah so we're going to look at a lot in sorcerer's stone today but first couple of announcements A reminder, we are going to be in Orlando, Micah, Eric, and I, in the middle of August, and we are putting together a MuggleCast meetup. So if you want to hang out with us, visit MuggleCast.com and click on the survey in this episode's show notes. We want to get an idea of how many people are going to be able to attend. It's going to be on a Thursday night. We're going to do it at a bar restaurant in CityWalk at Universal Orlando. So let us know if you could make it. We would love to see you. And another announcement. Just two days left to pledge on Patreon and receive your MuggleCast tote bag and signed album art. There has never been a better time to pledge. Seriously, you're going to get two physical items. The tote bag is awesome. It's a spacious bag. It's got a zipper. It's got a little pocket inside. In our tests, it held multiple Harry Potter books and a big jar of pickles simultaneously. So you can hold a lot in there. (laughs) It also has our iconic Mike Bolt logo and a new tagline carrying magic since 2005. One of the benefits of becoming a patron at the Dumbledore's Army level or above is that you get a new physical gift every year. And we're really proud to offer you this. We want to give back to you. We want you to feel like you're getting your money's worth. And this Patreon not only gives you great digital benefits, but some awesome physical benefits as well. And thanks to everybody who's joining us live on this Saturday morning on Patreon as we are recording. Should we let them in on the secret, y'all? Yeah, they're going to find out sooner or later. (laughs) (laughs) We're recording two episodes this morning, which we never do. Have we ever done that? Anyone remember such a thing? Yeah. I don't think so. When we went 24 hours, that became six episodes, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Back to back to back to back to back to back to back. Right. Yeah, I guess that was the longest thing we did before this. So we're recording two episodes this morning. And thanks, everybody who's joining us live on Patreon, tuning in, getting a raw version of the show. And everybody can also sound off as we're recording. And sometimes we use your feedback. Mm -hmm. So thanks, everybody who supports us at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Anyway, so let's jump straight into our main discussion this week, the secrets of book one. And Eric, you put this together. You spotted a ton of uh, interesting parallels and connections to book seven some really cool stuff we're talking about today yeah i love how many references to book seven kind of we all found about this but uh you know and 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 they're in this doc we'll go through them all but what blows my mind in general about sorcerer's stone you know the the first book uh is really just how much planning was evident for Mm -hmm. the later books and even though we talked last week about jk rowling's really humble origins and how she fought and had to fight to get the first book published. When she did, the book is riddled with clues and riddled with remnants of, you know, future books. She really did the planning 
Right. And that's what makes this what I imagine to be such a fun discussion is, you know, how many connections can we find and what other things were established in book one that played a big part in in not only the first book, but the later ones. Yeah. And you think about how when she was writing this, she had. Oh, there goes a jackhammer. Great. This is going to go well. Uh, <laughs> I don't hear anything. You don't? Okay. No. <laughs> Shaking my place. Um, <laughs> God. J.K. Rowling was writing this book, and she had no clue what lied ahead for her in terms of her career. So for her to be able to um, write this and, and be like, yeah, I'm going to write six more books, definitely, <laughs> when she had no money to her name, that takes, that takes strength and, and courage. Micah, Laura, thoughts? Sure. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Laura, I feel like you, you just perfectly captured everything that I was thinking, honestly. Well, cool. So let's begin. We're going to start with Dumbledore, a very good place to start. And the book starts with Dumbledore. We kind of see Vernon Dursley living his life, but at the end of the night, who shows up but Dumbledore? And it shocks me, really, just how... Throughout book one, Dumbledore is kind of in the background to Harry. Um, we see him maybe at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the book. But he really, by showing up in chapter one to oversee the deliverance of Harry from Hagrid to Privet Drive and setting up the spells and enchantments, really has a huge heavy hand in Harry's life. And we know throughout the book series, he has such a hand in Harry's life and death really you know he he is the man the main man behind making sure that harry fulfills his destiny to die at the hand of voldemort which he ends up doing and so it was kind of uh shocking to get this reminder that oh yeah dumbledore is is absolutely handing baby harry over to his aunt which sets him on that life path and it just in a in a very heavy-handed way dumbledore is controlling harry's life directly do we think that at this point dumbledore planned for harry to sacrifice himself 17 years later like how could he have known that harry would have the right temperament for that right it's a great question Th this gets into the whole debate of is dumbledore really the guardian grandfatherly type of figure for harry or is he this master manipulator who has a larger plan that he knows at some point Voldemort needs to be taken down and Harry is the key to the successful downfall of Voldemort? Maybe he doesn't realize it until the night that Voldemort tries to kill Harry, but certainly he's putting plans in motion. He has Arabella Fig watch over Harry while he's at Privet Drive. He knows that there's protection that Privet Drive and Petunia provide to Harry from Voldemort. Certainly, he grows very fond of Harry and, and cares for him very deeply. But I almost wonder, is this sort of his like flaw? You know, may, Maybe something very similar has happened in his past. Maybe when we learn about Ariana more, we'll see similarities. But he seems to be very still still very much consumed with this whole idea of of power even if it's not him being the one directly seeking it 
And he's heard the prophecy. He's the prophecy was directed at him. Basically, mm-hmm. uh, Tre- Trelawney told him the prophecy that said, neither can live while the other survives. And here's this baby boy going to live with his aunt and uncle. And, you know, I, I, Dumbledore is protecting his investment at this point. Um, I, I hate to be so cold and calculating, <laughs> but uh, I, I really think that that's what it is. And Dumbledore knows the, about the power of love and about the power of, well, blood magic that he's doing on Privet Drive. But at the end of the day, I blood think Dumbledore... Magic. Yeah, even early on is is setting Harry up for the the final conflict. And I know both on this week's discussion and next week's when we get to the end of book one, um, really see how Dumbledore is still manipulating the pieces of Mm. the chess set. Yeah, but the question is, if it wasn't Dumbledore who was going to set all these things in motion, who was it going to be? That that's a good point he he's arabella fig yeah. <laughs> well and and this whole conversation reminds me of aberforth when he's talking with harry and ron and hermione and he says that dumbledore sacrificed many things in his quest for power including our sister and mm-hmm. you could compare that to harry right he he obviously cared for his sister he cares for harry very much but he's yet willing to sacrifice him I don't think he knows 100% that things are going to play out the way that he wants them to. He's just kind of hopeful. And King's Cross may never have come to pass. Voldemort could have won. But yet, he's still willing to let Harry take the fall for everything and leave it all up to chance. But yeah. do, I guess we, part do we really of... know that that's what's going on at this point? No. I'm, I mean, is it... I, I, I would argue that at this point... Dumbledore just knows that if he can get the Dursleys to accept Harry into their home, that he'll have protection because Dumbledore also knows that Voldemort is going to come back, right? The rest of the wizarding world is like erroneously thinking that he's gone forever. Mm-hmm. And Dumbledore's like, nah, <laughs> we got to make sure this, we got to make sure this kid's okay. But kind of following up on that point, and this may be a bit of a silly question, but just from a logistics standpoint, if this child is in so much danger, why leave him on like the doorstep outside, exposed to the <laughs> elements? Somebody else asked this question on Patreon too. It is a little strange. I guess the boundaries of the protection extend to the doorstep. <laughs> McGonagall was watching though, wasn't she? She was sitting up on the uh, fence. Well, I mean, after they leave. Like he's still on the doorstep until uh, Aunt Petunia what brings out the milk crates in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just gonna say it's a safe neighborhood. It's a very safe neighborhood. You can leave packages there. You don't need an Amazon locker. You can uh, leave babies there as well, and they will not be taken. Well, but isn't the concern that a Death Eater might try to come after? Harry, it couldn't be too hard to track down his existing family. That's true. I, 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 but I do think that anyone wishing to do Harry explicit harm won't be able to be on Privet Drive. That's why the Seven Potters thing has to happen. Um, there's a certain radius now that Harry's there that prevents evildoers from onlooking. But does the protection actually kick in at this point, or does it kick in at the moment? When Petunia finds him and brings him into her home, isn't the acceptance of him into the home a big part of this? It is. You're right. And I am blown. My mind is blown right mm. now. 
He could have, you know, speaking of McGonagall and cat, he could have been eaten by cats <laughs> you know, or by like raccoons or or whatever they have over in the UK. A feral raccoon, a, ra- a rabid stoat is going to devour the boy who lives. I normally don't stick up for cats, but I could I could assure you, Micah, that cats don't eat humans. Eh. Feral cats might. Feral dogs. <laughs> I don't think so. Raccoons, possums. Let's go down the list. There are stray dogs. There are stray dogs uh, wandering around Privet Drive late at night in the the morning hour. Yeah. Badgers. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, this is like a literary thing, right? It's... It reads more nicely to imagine this baby like laying on the front porch waiting to be found. Mm -hmm. But truly, even just from like a logistics standpoint, like... I'm imagining like a neighbor like getting up for their early morning run before anybody else is awake and seeing a baby on a doorstep. Like, I don't think that would actually work unless there's some kind of enchantment that makes it invisible to anyone other than the Dursleys. I don't know. Kind of like Hogwarts. Right. I don't know. I think Privet Drive, it's starting to sound like a security nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) And we're assuming that Harry never cried at all throughout the course of the night to wake anybody up in the neighborhood. Using comfy blankets. I don't usually make much the level of analysis of this though i just want to say is truly amazing we should probably continue on yeah yeah for sure so we we mentioned stray dogs uh reminding me of sirius black sirius black gets a mention in chapter one of book one just just let that sink in blown away right I'm, i'm totally blown away by this this was one of those things where when i first read uh book one i had already read book three and so when i get to book one and i see sirius black name shout out i i just complete my jaw dropped i think it hit the floor i had to pick it back up um it's just more evidence of Rowling's planning so since we were talking about you know what's the level of dumbledore's planning here let's talk about jk Rowling. do we think she knew at that point that sirius black had betrayed the Potters or, or supposedly betrayed the Potters. How much did she know about Peter Pettigrew and the circumstances surrounding Lillian James's downfall? Because she places Sirius Black at the scene where Hagrid picked up baby Harry. And that's pretty cool. Let's ask her. (laughs) (laughs) Dear. I think she probably had the Marauders angle established at Mm -hmm. this point. I don't know if she, how sure she was that Sirius was going to be a key character in prisoner of azkaban and beyond Mm -hmm. i guess i do think that she had these large arcs planned out though because Mm -hmm. as we've established probably two or three episodes back um half-blood prince was a potential title for chamber of secrets right and a lot of the story elements in half-blood prince were originally going to be in chamber of secrets so the Mm -hmm. fact that she knew a lot of what was going to happen in the sixth book at that point indicates to me that this name dropping of Sirius Black was absolutely intentional Mm. and not just like a convenient hook that, you know, two books later, she was like, oh, awesome. I'm glad I put that in there. (laughs) (laughs) What it does for me, though, is, is it raises more questions, especially as we get further into the series, because it's hard for me to believe that Dumbledore, given all the assistance that's provided to Harry in Prisoner of Azkaban, that he doesn't believe in Sirius Black's innocence. Mm. 
And that's probably a whole nother episode that we could discuss, but it, Sirius flees the scene, right? He gives Hagrid the motorbike to take Harry away, but and he's going he goes after Peter as as you as you mentioned here. I, I do think JK Rowling had this figured out that Sirius was in fact the innocent party and Pettigrew was the one who or maybe she didn't have an idea of, of who that character was going to be yet, but there was going to be somebody else amongst the group of friends that was ultimately going to be the one to betray James and Lily. But I think the plan was always there for Sirius to be this godfatherly type figure to Harry. But it, it does raise other questions too about why it was never fully investigated as to what happened and, and why Dumbledore didn't step in and, and try and do something. Yeah. I mean, I guess at this point when Hagrid mentions that Sirius gave him the motorbike, Dumbledore's just like, oh, they're old friend. That's nice. Um, because, but he later gives evidence that Sirius Black was their secret keeper. And so something was definitely amiss there that Dumbledore doesn't argue in the moment. But later, I think he sours on whether Sirius is good or not, because of the way Peter so cleverly frames his own death. And then a couple other things I noticed in regards to this. First of all, this is referenced in Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure to Eric's Delight when I brought that up a few <laughs> weeks ago. And, you know, Dumbledore mentions because McGonagall finds out that Hagrid's bringing Harry in and McGonagall's like, what? Hagrid? Why would you trust Hagrid? And Dumbledore says he would trust Hagrid with his life. And I kind of found that interesting. Because just a few weeks ago in Half-Blood Prince, Hagrid, when we were discussing Half-Blood Prince, Hagrid is literally carrying Dumbledore's dead body, which is kind of mm. sad parallel and almost foreshadowing. And then, of course, he carries Harry's body in Deathly Hallows. So mm -hmm. sad stuff all around. But um, also, speaking of, you know, how this book connects to Deathly Hallows, doesn't don't we find out the fate of Sirius's motorbike in Deathly Hallows? We find out Arthur Weasley has it. Has the motorbike. Mm -hmm. Is that true? I think so. When I was doing some reading earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I believe that's right. That's and I mean, also, we just have the nice parallel that um, Hagrid, you know, brings Harry on the motorbike and then he collects Harry with a different motorbike in oh, Deathly yeah. Hallows. So. Um, yeah. And, and there's a really interesting point in the doc about Statute of Secrecy. Andrew, did you put that in? <laughs> Yeah, so this I, this really stuck out to me every time I read this th this opening chapter of Sorcerer's Stone because J.K. Rowling notes that Vernon is surprised by all these people wearing funny clothing, and of course this is the day after Voldemort is defeated, and wizards and witches are willing to go out in public with their quote unquote wild clothing to celebrate the news of Voldemort's downfall, which is clearly violating the international statute of secrecy and yet they don't seem to care <laughs> and it's also interesting because of what we see in the fantastic beast film series oh yeah they, they they take it very seriously and of course in the later harry potter books it's brought up a uh, numerous times so i just wonder what's going through everybody's heads they just don't care because the news is so significant do do they think they don't need to be in hiding anymore now that Voldemort is defeated? Mm, yeah, I, I I think that the type of people you see or hear celebrating uh, are are the kinds who are just 
so relieved to, I think McGonagall says um, that they've had precious little to celebrate over the last several years. And, and really the, the people like Daedalus Diggle who are shooting off stars, shooting stars in Kent, he, he never did have much sense. These are the people that are, that are, that are the party goers, the party goods of the world um, that uh, really are just highly relieved and, and, I think the statute of secrecy is should be taken into consideration and should absolutely be um, held uh, very high up in people's priorities. But ultimately today, if – well, doesn't McGonagall even say, wouldn't it be great if today is the day that they found out about us? Right. I can't remember that part, but she does – you know, there is that moment where it's either her or, or- – Dumbledore says everybody will remember his name. Yeah. Uh, there will be a Harry Potter day. <laughs> Which there's, we're still waiting on Warner Brothers to implement. Um, yep. Yeah, it's July 31st, though. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the fandom, we definitely accept that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think on the point of people like openly celebrating, I think that goes back to the fact that they are wrongly assuming that Voldemort is gone forever. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that's a big part of Dumbledore's like hesitation with all of this is he's like, "Mm, guys, uh, just because he's like vapor (laughs) does not mean he can't come back. (laughs) Yeah. Don't you all know about Horcruxes? He's like, boy, have I got a story for you. (laughs) (laughs) That that ties into this next point about Harry's scar, because McGonagall asked Dumbledore, can it be removed? Yeah. And Dumbledore says, eh, well, scars can come in handy. And then he makes what might be a joke about his own scar. But how much does Dumbledore know about the Horcruxes? And how much does he know or suspect about the connection to Harry's scar and Voldemort? Everything. <laughs> no. No, I don't think he knows well, everything. Go ahead, Andrew. He Well, like we were just saying, he suspects that Voldemort may not be completely gone. So then that leads you to wonder how could he still be out there? And then he starts doing all this Horcrux research. Um, so, yeah, I don't think I don't think um, I don't think Dumbledore has any particular answers at this point in time. That's pretty much what I was going to say is that there's mm-hmm. these remnants of Voldemort that still exist. And we find that out later on in this book. And. To Andrew's point, there's still a thought in Dumbledore's mind that Voldemort is going to return. Now he has to have some sort of inkling as to how he's going to about go about achieving that. It can't just be that he's going to, you know, appear out of thin air. I know this is a book that has magic in it, but you know, come on. Uh I, but Dumbledore is is extremely intelligent, and so it has to be a thought that crosses his mind, and then of course he gets that proof mm-hmm. in Chamber of Secrets. And I think it's fair to say that that was the moment that, and he, I think he mentions this in Half-Blood Prince, that he knew pretty much for certain that Voldemort was using Horcruxes, but it had to have crossed his mind prior to that. I don't know if it's happening in this particular moment, but he's too smart to have not have thought that this is something that Voldemort could be pursuing. Yeah, I think at the very least, he has to know that the scar is the result of his mother's confrontation with Voldemort and Dumbledore is way too like learned of a wizard to discount what that could mean. 
and potentially viewing that scar as like a manifestation of some kind of anchor that Voldemort still has to the world, right? Yeah. So he may not know, he may not be clued in entirely on what it means yet and what that anchor is, but he knows well enough to know that it is going to play like pretty significantly into the series or rather into Harry's life. And and let's not forget the prophecy and the Dark Lord will mark him as his equal. You exactly. Know, will mark him. That's a mark. The, and the, the, the killing curse does not normally leave a mark. Um, so... So is that what Dumbledore means when he says that scars can come in handy? I, I find that mm-hmm. pretty interesting. And Eric, as you mentioned, Dumbledore jokes about his own scar, which is a, a evidently perfect map of the <laughs> London underground on his knee, which we never get an answer to as to, you know, how he came, how he got that. Is that a tattoo? <laughs> Maybe we'll find out in uh, the next Fantastic Beasts movie. Oh, wouldn't that be freaking cool if, like, the next movie just opens up with Dumbledore, like, getting a London Underground tattoo on his knee and he's, like, smoking a cig, just kicked back, like, drinking, too. I'm glad we mentioned this because I I took him literally for, like, 15 years reading this book. But every time I read it now, I'm thinking, no, it's got to just be a complete joke. Like, it's... Oh, I I thought he's... I think he's serious. He's got it. It has to be a joke because if you look at a map of the London Underground, it's a mess. And so, <laughs> well, I mean, it is today, but who knows what it was like when he got the tattoo? I, well, visually, or he he got the scar. I'm sorry. Well, it's like so what? Anytime he's lost in the tube, he's he, far less trains back in like 1930 or 40. Yeah, but you got multiple lines, and it's just the idea just that it, it could be an accurate like like if he's ever lost in the tube, he just lifts up his robes and knows Whoa. what train to board. You know, yeah. like <laughs> it, it, it has all the different times is... that the trains will be. Uh... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's bewitched his own scar to tell him when to board the train. But this is what Dumbledore does, right? It's one of his distraction tactics. Yes. I mean, come on, like Mirror of Era said, I see myself with socks, you know, <laughs> or like even at the end of book one, when he's trying to get Harry to stop asking questions, he's like, oh, let me try this toffee yeah. bean. Oh, right. it's earwax. Like he kind of leans into this like whimsical sort of aloof character when it's convenient for him to distract from things that he maybe doesn't want people asking questions about. True. And I actually saw this as a moment of trying to maybe lessen the effect on Harry. So not to say that Harry is self-conscious about having this scar, but it's almost like he's trying to make him feel better by saying, hey, you know what? I have one too. And it's a map of the London Underground. And and to Laura's point, I think it's just part of his personality to to deflect a little bit and to be humorous. And I think it's it's a moment to just kind of act as as somebody who's trying to be supportive of somebody else. Yeah. I, I think I should say as a disclaimer that I actually love the London Underground. Um I said it was a mess, but actually until I found Chicago's CTA and Andrew backed me up how cool is the CTA. I thought that the tube was one of the most efficient mass transit systems I had ever encountered. Um Yeah, they're both great. Yeah. So I, I like them both equally, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, definitely very fast. I've never really had any delays. So you know, I, I just think on a Do you have a map of the CTA on your knee? I would get a map of the CTA <laughs> on my knee. If we get two thousand patrons, 
by next summer. Uh oh. <laughs> no. But um but yeah, it's just it's it's I've actually thought of stealing a poster. You know how on the train platform they have that really beautiful orange line, blue line, brown line, pink line, green line map of with the grids in Chicago showing you how it's all laid out. I've often thought of just nicking that and yeah, I just thought well, about. We don't condone theft, but yeah. I have actually thought about that too. <laughs> well, you can buy them on eBay. You can let somebody Didn't else. Didn't you steal, steal posters from New Jersey Transit? Oh yeah, my brother stole that cursed child poster from oh, New that's Jersey right. Transit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. So you do condone thievery? <laughs> well, yeah, sure. When it, when it benefits you, <laughs> I I actually have a, a serious Fantastic Beast question. Do you think that Grindelwald drew the map of the London Underground on Dumbledore's oh left knee? Oh my god! Like that's how movie three can open up, like <laughs> a sunlit day on the grass, and like from Titanic with uh, <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate. Dumbledore is wearing nothing but a necklace, <laughs> sprawled out on a couch. No, 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 nothing but a metro map. Just like on it. <laughs> Mark it on me, baby. Think of all the subway action we got in New York City in uh, the first okay. film. Yeah. Well. Yeah. All right. Let's really move on, mass please. Transit. This question about whether Dumbledore knew or suspected uh, that there was a Horcrux connection and whether or not the London Underground scar is true was actually a question submitted over on our links line from uh, patron Samantha. So we want to thank her, and we're going to be incorporating, you'll see in a moment, we're going to incorporate more feedback from our links line into this discussion. One one quick thing here, uh, Andrew, you mentioned that Harry's scar is a source for pride uh, for him. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting, too. Um, so Dumbledore says it, it'll be a source of pride for Harry. And then in the very next chapter, Harry says that his scar is the one thing he likes about his appearance. But on the other hand... Harry, That's... Harry also just wishes he could blend in in the later books, and it's mm-hmm. partly because of that scar that he can't blend in. So it's a love I don't right. know what to think of this. It's actually surprising to me that he isn't more self-conscious about the scar. Really? Why do you say that? Well, I mean, especially growing up, it's not it's something that he's had since he's very young, and maybe that's why he just doesn't pay as much attention to it. But you'd think that maybe he would get made fun of for it, or he'd be you know, have some issues with, with having that on his head for his entire life. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just, uh, he's, what, a 10-year-old boy at this point? I feel like it It kind of boils down to the simple fact that a 10-year-old boy is probably going to be like, I have a lightning bolt scar. That's cool. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think, too, and- yeah, I, I think that it's uh, sort of a secret to himself that it's his connection to the magical world that he doesn't yet know exists, but I think that's why he likes it. I think it is secretly a reminder that he belongs somewhere else, and so he grows attached to it for that reason. And it also it's also something a bit mysterious about him that makes him special, and up until Hagrid comes to usher him into the wizarding world, he doesn't know he's special. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's one thing to want that kind of attention and to crave it, but then when you start actually getting it, it's probably a bit overwhelming. Yeah. So I think it's it's kind of like he didn't really know what he was hoping for, and then he got it, and he was like, oh, this is a lot. <laughs> and maybe his scar is covered by his hair most of the time, so the kids at school don't call him, hey, scar boy, um, all the time. Maybe. 
So we were talking so much about London and the underground and the mass transit. Let's actually move our discussion there. A couple chapters away from the beginning of the book, we meet, we get into Diagon Alley, and all sorts of stuff happens there. And one of the things that book one does, I think, pretty well, is it really sets up these safe places of the magical world, both in Hogwarts and in Gringotts. We literally, in the Diagon Alley chapter, see Hagrid take the Sorcerer's Stone from Gringotts and put it at Hogwarts. Um, so, or, or that in the next couple chapters. So we've really kind of got a cool clue or a cool idea as to if you're going to hide something of great value, where do you put it? And these are the two answers. And I know there's connections to be made because they break into Gringotts in book seven. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yep. And I, I love this because book seven very much mirrors Harry's journey in book one of like going to Diagon Alley, going to Gringotts, and then going to Hogwarts. Mm. Of course, for very different reasons between <laughs> the two books, but it's still really beautifully done. And that's why I'm, I, I will die on this hill. The Harry Potter series is a frame narrative. Mm-hmm. And it's just so beautifully done. J.K. Rowling is a master of this. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And and I think as it relates to Gringotts, we get, I believe it's in the chapter before they actually go to Diagon Alley when Hagrid is with Harry and they're escaping the Dursley Island. And uh, he mentions that Gringotts is guarded by dragons. And then in Deathly Hallows, of course, we come face to face with one of those dragons. And we enter Gringotts and Sorcerer's Stone and break out of it in Deathly Hallows. And Grip Hook plays an integral role both times. Mm, that's a good he, one. I believe he's the uh, goblin that shows Harry to his vault, as well as the one that the Sorcerer's Stone is in. And then, of course, he's with them later on when they break into Gringotts in Book Seven. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. And I just uh, was reminded as well, going through book one, that Quirrell succeeds in breaking in to Gringotts. He actually gets into the vault, for crying mm-hmm. out loud, the vault that um, Harry and Hagrid were just in. And he makes it that far without being uh, directly possessed at that point, we know, by Voldemort. So it kind of speaks to Quirrell's prowess. Uh, I know we'll be talking more about him in when we do chapter 17, but do we know how do, do we have any guesses how Quirrell got actually into that vault? Because mm. we see what Harry and the and the group have to do in book seven, and it's pretty much an inside job. I think it's pretty impressive that uh, Quirrell makes it all the way there. Yeah. I'm going to say he used a troll. There you go. That's a, that's a, because he's got this special relationship. <laughs> that's a with great trolls, answer. Right? He does say that. Yeah. yeah. He just kind of, but, but I, uh, trolls but i mean sneaking those around gringotts i don't know i'm i'm joking i don't think that's really possible and i could be wrong here but isn't it confirmed that he doesn't actually make it and that's why voldemort you know attaches himself to the back of his head Mm. because he can't trust him to operate alone uh well yes but i thought it was because they got it to the vault and the vault had been emptied oh okay yeah Mm -hmm. quarrel kind of failed in his research although he didn't Mm -hmm. um that was kind of my guess. I think he makes it in, at least in the movie, and I know we can't like rely on the movie, but it, it's uh, the Daily Prophet clipping says the vault in question number whatever um, had in fact been emptied earlier in the day. So yeah, you're right. You're right. That's that's a bookism too. Yeah. So so the so the the Daily Prophet there was a break in because Gringotts had to report it. 
I wonder if they're obligated, which is not a big deal. We can talk about that later. But like if they're obligated to report a break in because of how many people have important shit at Gringotts. So it was crucial to them that they stated what vault it was that had been broken into to kind of keep the rest of the Wizarding World at ease, uh, that it wasn't their possessions. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, just wrapping up that point, both Gringotts and Hogwarts have Horcruxes stored at them. The diadem is at Hogwarts in the Room of Requirement, and uh, Gringotts has the cup in Bellatrix Lestrange's vault. So just an important connection for the later series. And also in London, though, King's Cross Station. This is something I did something I never really do uh, the other day, and I looked up J.K. Rowling on Wikipedia. Um, and I was reminded that J.K. Rowling's parents met... Uh, on a train f that was leaving from King's Cross Station uh, in 1964, going for a place called Arbroath. And not only did her parents meet on a train from King's Cross Station, but J.K. Rowling, we know, came up with a story for Harry Potter while she was on a train. And it was, I think, these two things that really morphed into her deciding to make King's Cross Station the barrier between worlds. Mm, yeah. Yeah, wow. that's pretty beautiful. Yeah. And I think she's also just somebody who has an attachment to trains. Mm -hmm. I mean, she conceived this idea on a train. Yeah. Right. Maybe more people would like Fantastic Beasts, the film series, if she came up with that on a train. <laughs> <laughs> it's just her good luck charm, it seems. Maybe she needs to go right on the train and then... <laughs> The plot will make hmm. more sense, but maybe she has her own train at this point that she just <laughs> she, writes on full time. I would. She could just go to Orlando and shut down the park and right <laughs> go back and go, forth on the go fake back Hogwarts and forth. Express. She's got the resources to do that. I I really like though what you said, Eric, in terms of being the barrier between worlds because of what we see in Deathly Hallows. Right when Harry wakes up, he's in presumably what he considers to be King's Cross, and it's essentially the barrier between life and death. He makes the choice to return to the world of the living, and very much in this first book, it's the barrier between the magical and non-magical worlds. Yeah, it's how you get on the Hogwarts Express to get to Hogwarts. And plenty of uh, fantasy books have this barrier between worlds. I'm thinking very specifically of Narnia, and th there's actually a whole... Uh, it's a wardrobe. Like, well, well, the wardrobe, but like the forest in um, the Magician's Nephew book, there's, a, there's mm. a forest whereby there are pools that access multiple dimensions, multiple... Mm worlds and magical things and so it's really you know borrowed uh, this veil so to speak uh between the worlds and that's king's cross so yeah I, I just think it is very nostalgic of joe and very nice to know that like her parents you know who doesn't have an admiration for their parents meeting and and want to hear about their parents like love story and all that kind of stuff so yeah i i think it's uh, a pretty beautiful thing definitely but uh, but my favorite point uh, that we're going to bring up is coming up right now when Harry's on the train. I believe it's in the journey from Platform 9 and 3 quarters chapter. And he gets Dumbledore's chocolate frog card. <laughs> yeah. And this is so important because not only did it have relevance to uh, the other books in book seven and all that, but I would argue that the chocolate frog card may be the most important artifact in all of book one for its relevance 
to the Fantastic Beasts series. Uh, who would like to read this inscription in full? I think it's very worth our time to go into. I will. Considered by many the greatest wizard of modern times, Dumbledore is particularly famous for his defeat of the dark wizard Grindelwald in 1945, for the discovery of the Twelve Uses of Dragon's Blood, and his work on alchemy with his partner Nicholas Flamel. Professor Dumbledore enjoys chamber music and ten-pin bowling, and also has the London Underground on his knee. No, not that last part. So you think... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, so, I mean, the mention of Grindelwald is big. That is something that uh, is very relevant as Fantastic Beasts happens, because the series has been... J.K. Rowling has said that the series will pretty much end with Dumbledore's defeat of Grindelwald. We got some characterization from Aberforth and others in Book 7 as to what exactly or specifically went down, but it's still, for the most part, a mystery. Um, As is... His work on alchemy with his partner, Nicholas Flamel. And Nicholas Flamel, you know, being sort of a a real life person, there was a Nicholas Flamel in real life who was rumored to be 600 years old, um, is definitely a big part in just book one. But now that he's come back in the crimes of Grindelwald and operated a safe house for our heroes, we fully expect, and we've seen him with that book, um, the book that was kind of like a pre-order the Phoenix, we think he's definitely up to something and will help our heroes in the future. So I just think mm-hmm. it's important. This relationship, whatever it is between Dumbledore and Nicholas is, is one for the ages. And knowing that a far older man, um, you know, in Nick is partners in alchemy with Dumbledore, whatever they did together, whatever they discovered together um, is is of crucial importance, I think, to Fantastic Beasts, the series. I agree. Um, there's a reason that there haven't really been any other hooks in the Harry Potter series regarding Dumbledore's work in alchemy, right? Mm-hmm. Like there have been little tidbits dropped throughout the books about Grindelwald to like kind of lead uh, lead us towards the Fantastic Beasts story. Maybe I don't know if she planned to actually do anything with that this early on. Um, but I I don't think it's an accident that we don't learn anything about Dumbledore's work in alchemy in these books. Right. This and is going to be a MuggleCast TBT one day. We're going to look back <laughs> on this moment. Well, then we have to make... And we'll be wrong. Yeah, we have to make predictions. But Aurelius Dumbledore, the presuming, uh, presumed original name for Credence, Aurelius means golden one. And alchemy is all about turning base metals into gold. Um, so, and, and there is something in alchemy, we've talked about this briefly before called a homunculus, which is essentially a person created out of nothing. Um, and, uh, Voldemort in chapter 17 says that once he gets the elixir of life, he will be able to create a body. So this all really comes down to alchemy in the end. Book one shies off landing that particular tangent as Laura was saying, but I think we're going to get a lot of it in Fantastic Beasts. Certainly looking like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know how the 12 uses of Dragon's Blood might come into play. I expected to at least know a couple by the end of the seven book series. Um, But it's not really. I mean, we're, we're it's on his chocolate frog card because it's a tremendous scientific discovery in the magical world. But we don't really know what they are. But but I think one of the whimsical and interesting things about the wizarding world 
series about the harry potter series is we do hear about random things like this in passing and then never again yeah it would be great to hear about these things but we love jk rowling's writing for the level of detail even if we don't get answers to every single thing and i think that's kind of like an example of that yeah i i I love that i think it's great any other thoughts on the, the card that could be the next that could be the harry potter tv series that is inevitably in development at warner brothers Albus Dumbledore and the 12 uses of dragon's blood. <laughs> every <laughs> season is a use or every episode is, uh, this is what you can do with it. They, they could just have a series called Albus's alchemy. There you go. Perfect. And Jude and, Law can host. <laughs> no, what they should do at the Hogshead is they should make the 12 shots of dragon's blood and just... <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, moving on to a little later in the book, Harry's first confrontation with Voldemort comes in the Forbidden Forest. He doesn't know it's him, but he spots Quirrell uh, drinking the unicorn's blood. And not shortly after, we meet the centaurs, the centaurs that are in the forest. And this was of particular interest, I think, for the series as a whole, because the centaurs are very much long-term thinkers. And they keep saying in that chapter of Sorcerer's Stone, that Mars is bright tonight. Now, that is a very on-the-nose foreshadowing of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, wars to come, perhaps, because Mars is, of course, the Greek and Roman god of war. And I, not only is it uh, sort of symbolizing that there is a war to come, but we had a lot of people on our links line over on Patreon kind of have more thoughts to say. Uh, on the matter. Yeah, David uh, chimed in and said, in the Forbidden Forest chapter, the centaur Bane says to Ferenz, who has just rescued Harry from the presence of Quirrell slash Voldemort, remember, Ferenz, we are sworn not to set ourselves against the heavens. Have you not read what is to come in the movements of the planets? It is not our business to run around like donkeys and stray humans in our forest. What exactly do you think the centaurs had read in the heavens? The way I interpret this passage... Bane is telling Ferenz he should not have saved Harry from Quirrell slash Voldemort, a decision which may have resulted in Harry's death. That being said, could the centaurs have been foretelling the end of the series when Harry and Voldemort are fated to finally face off with each other in the, quote, Forest Again chapter of Deathly Hallows, an encounter which ultimately does lead to Harry's death? Mm. Great questions. It is... Yeah, it is an interesting consideration that that forest encounter that happened in book seven could have happened much earlier in the series had Ferenz not intervened. Yeah. And Harry wouldn't have been prepared for it. And then Issy saw this comment from David on Patreon and she replied, I think this relates back to the idea that the centaurs can see what will happen, but do not know when it will happen. So they know Harry must die at the hands of Voldemort for Voldemort to be defeated. Bane sees this as the potential moment, whereas Ferenz thinks it's not time yet. And and I do love the idea that uh, as real scholars of any field, they can disagree with each other. Uh, the, the centaurs can. Um, oh, I thought you were going to say you're referring to all of us as scholars for a second. <laughs> oh, no, no. Heavens no. We're just hobbyists. Um, but... Uh, well, I, I don't know. After 14 years, are we scholars? Listeners, we, we right? better in. be What's classified our... as something. I'm a dropout. <laughs> a no, dropout. Andrew, you're not a dropout. 
we are getting business cards made though which is really cool our final we're, we're i think we're <laughs> becoming legit. scholars yeah <laughs> do you do you have us listed as scholars on there yes actually it's in the uh, album art you can't see it but it's there <laughs> well it's a bunch of books anyway we'll talk about that later um but yeah the centaurs disagreeing with one another is one of my favorite parts of the book that kind of like andrew says like it doesn't come up too often when it does it's enjoyable um sort of forens is ostracized by the rest of the centaurs for um teaching at the school and in general like learning about i guess the centaurs are a really good example of the magical beasts that we can that we live alongside um you don't really get like the mer people aren't in book one um and some of the other examples like house elves aren't until later you know book two book four so the centaurs are a really good example of how jk rowling writes these people that are comparable to humans but are ultimately altogether different um and forens in particular just disagrees with uh, he's more comfortable around humans and he gives harry at some point a ride on his back which Mm -hmm. completely disgusts the other centaurs but forens is is more of a woke individual he's more of a forward-thinking guy and he seems to think that the end will be brought about by cooperation between the races and not this stark isolation that the other stuffy uh scholar centaurs who study the stars and don't interfere uh think that it should be done yeah and what's so interesting here too is that forens is the one that draws the comparison between like immortality and the sorcerer's stone so that harry has this realization like oh crap that's what voldemort is after and it's it's really interesting to me how much forens knows here like he flat out says harry potter do you know what is hidden in hogwarts castle right now yeah yeah, yeah. he tells him the plot of the book <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Ferenz, Ferenz is like the guy who knows how it all ends and is giving you clues like spoil like pre-spoiling you. He's the guy who read the book early. Yeah. And yelled Snape kills Dumbledore. <laughs> Do we think that because Ferenz is so much more open to cooperation across species that he's somehow inherently more clued in about what's going to happen? Cuz it seems like Bane has like a general idea, kind of like what Issy was saying, like he knows something's going to happen, but he doesn't know when. But it seems like Ferenz is actually way more in the know about specific details, hmm. which makes me wonder if like the heavens grant him some kind of extra insight into what's going to happen because he's actually approaching it with an open hmm. mind. And that, which is, is interesting, because that's a big part of like divination and like astrology. Yeah, but that is also a good lesson from J.K. Rowling to open your mind up to other types of people mm -hmm. who you normally, who you might resist, you know, listening to. Right. Love everyone. Exactly. It reminds me of the uh, line from Grip Hook in Deathly Hallows Part Two, and I can't remember if it's in the book, though I'm sure it is in some form where he says to Harry, you buried the house elf. And then he calls him a strange creature. Mm. Because the, I don't think what... like These creatures are not used to humans interacting with them in a compassionate or open-minded way. Mm -hmm. And just to, to the point Laura made. And I've also always thought about this relationship between Bane and Ferenz. Like, when I think about Bane, I always think about just somebody who's constantly annoying and Ferenz is 
Well, the, that's yeah. what the name means. And, and friends, it just sounds like he's your friend. Like, and I'm sure there's other, you know, etymology behind friends, but it just the, the sort of the difference between the two of them playing off each other, which they do throughout the course of the, the series. Yeah. And an interesting quote that I just read over here about this interaction related to this whole discussion. Uh, it says, good luck, Harry Potter, said Ferenz. The planets have been read wrongly before now, even by centaurs. I hope this is one of those times. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Firenze is a city in Italy. It's Florence. That's what we say. It's the <laughs> name for Florence. Very beautiful city of arts and culture. So it kind of makes sense that Firenze would be the um, center of arts and culture for the centaurs, as far as the humans go. So uh, we're actually going to reach sort of the end of the book now uh, of book one in our chronological viewing of some of these threads that we're connecting. But um, a big part of it is Harry's magical protection that his mother left him. And this is something that uh, comes about every once in a while. It definitely is the reason that Harry survives his encounter with Quirrell at the end of the book. But it really um, is something that guides Harry through all seven books, and it's established pretty heavily here that Lily, in sacrificing herself for Harry, has granted him this special extra layer of protection. And Voldemort, for his part, partly overcomes this in book four, in the very midpoint of the series. But there's still this lingering protection that is granted to Harry, and only touched on briefly in each book, but is relevant throughout. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you bring up a great point here too about how it's it's relevant in Deathly Hallows because Harry essentially makes the same sacrifice that his mother made. It doesn't happen in book one, but it it's sort of the the lead in to this entire series. And and Harry's willingness to sacrifice himself really provides this protection of love for those that are fighting on his side in Deathly Hallows. So that wasn't a fever dream I had, right? That actually happens. Like yeah. J.K. Rowling later said that there was a concrete magical protect. It's like giving your friends Felix Felicis and spells bouncing off them, right? Like I was shocked because I only I've reread book seven the least, but uh, I think it's kind of crazy that Harry is able to duplicate this protection, just a blanket you know, across all his supporters. <laughs> but this is to Laura's point of the series being a frame narrative. Right. Yeah. But uh, the idea that Lily Potter was the only mother to cradle her young infant while they were murdered, thereby giving him some kind of life-saving protection is a bit absurd from a, you know, the Wizarding World has ex existed as long as ours has kind of- But it's sacrifice. So that that's, to me, that's where the protection is coming from. Of course, there's love involved with I, you can argue it in both cases, there's love involved, but Harry willingly is sacrificing himself. He is not defending himself in any way. He's basically just like opening himself up and mm -hmm. saying, if this is what it takes, then kill me. Yeah. And that that ultimately provides the protection that his friends need uh, to defeat the Death Eaters and, and Voldemort in the end. We were talking earlier about Dumbledore putting his faith in Harry being sort of the chosen one and him deciding that Harry would have this life. Do you think Dumbledore 
was convinced in this moment with this magical protection when Quirrell can't touch Harry at all that, yeah, he made the right choice with with choosing Harry. Yeah. Because was there a moment earlier in the book, uh, more so than this one, that kind of solidified that thinking? Could have solidified that thinking? Yeah, probably not. I, th- I think you're exactly right. I think Harry's success, even though Dumbledore was sort of reckless leaving him on his own to fight Quirrell, um, his success in doing so, I think, definitely solidified a lot of things in Dumbledore's mind about where the future, <laughs> how the future must turn out. If a Death Eater tried to pick up baby Harry on the doorstep, would they just catch on fire? <laughs> would, oh, yeah, they, maybe. would they burn like Quirrell did? I'm thinking like Jack-Jack in The Incredibles, how he can burst into flames. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Something that... I think is a really interesting parallel between Dumbledore and Voldemort actually is that element of choice when it comes to Harry, because Harry only became Voldemort's equal because Voldemort chose to mark him as such. And kind of on the, like, if you flip that coin, Dumbledore chose Harry to be the one to take Voldemort down. Yeah. And I guess our last thing that we'll touch on directly about, elements from book one snape professor snape the hogwarts professor the half-blood prince in all of his glory we spend the whole book thinking that he done it and he doesn't done it (laughs) this is something that we're gonna feel throughout the entire series each book really snape does horrible things and is not the greatest teacher in the world but uh ultimately is proven to be on the side of good And, you know, this is one of those things where if it were any other author, I wouldn't trust them to pull the same trick every book. But ultimately, and and with the exception of book three, I think he's genuinely a bad guy and nearly ruins everything for Sirius in book three. Um, But the rest of the book series, he's very much a devoted gray area character. So, um, yeah, really just what are your what are your thoughts on sort of the setup of Snape? Um and how she kind of set up this trajectory of us believing him to be bad only to find out he's good for the rest of the series. Sounds familiar. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, in, in this book, right. It's, it's exactly what you just said, Eric, he's set up to be bad, but we find out that he's actually good, right? He saves Harry at, at, during the Quidditch match. He's trying to assist him at other times throughout the course of Sorcerer's Stone, and that's, in fact, really what Snape is all about at the end of the day. Even begrudgingly the, at that, he's protecting Harry despite what Harry may think. Mm-hmm. I was going to bring this up next episode, but I'll bring it up now. Shouldn't the debate have been over at the end of book one when we find out Snape actually was the one trying to protect Harry? Maybe. But Dumbledore seems to tell Harry that now Snape and his father are even. So once the once that is over, then Snape can continue being a bad guy and maybe actually be a bad guy. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And once Voldemort returns, yeah. yeah. And I mean, Snape get, definitely gets up to some sketchy stuff over the course of the series. <laughs> but I think what's really brilliant about the way this is played out is that every year you sort of have this recurring theme of like. Harry wanting to think that Snape is up to something, Harry wanting to think Snape is evil, it's always refuted. And it kind of gets to the point where by book six, you're like, oh my God, Harry, like, 
It's been six years of this. Nothing has happened. Can you just come off of it now? And then, you know, he kills Dumbledore and you're like, well, crap. Um, But then, you know, that's only to make like he's redeemed in book seven, obviously. But I thought that the pacing on that was really brilliant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because as a reader, you're almost like kind of like exhausted with Harry's insistence that Snape is evil. And you're like, oh, my God, there's other stuff you can be focusing on, my man. Like Like Draco. Or, like, maybe being good at potions on your own and not <laughs> yeah. cheating your way through your class. But then Snape kills Dumbledore, and you're like, oh, my God, he was a bad guy all along. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. No. Uh, there's also a number of other connections uh, between book one and seven, and just wanted to to mention a few of these. The Sorcerer's Stone and Deathly Hallows are both used to make the owner immortal or to try to achieve immortality. Sorcerer's Stone features, well, the Sorcerer's Stone and and Deathly Hallows features the Resurrection Stone. So stones playing key roles in both of those books. Mm -hmm. And then speaking of the Resurrection Stone, the snitch that Harry catches in this book plays a crucial role in Mm -hmm. Deathly Hallows. It houses the Resurrection Stone. Yeah. Well, does he catch, he more swallows it. (laughs) Yeah, he catches it with his mouth. Mm -hmm. And this one I liked. Neville's bravery is featured in both books. He stands up to the trio when they are looking to break out of the common room and go after the Sorcerer's Stone. And then he stands up to Voldemort and ultimately kills Nagini in Deathly Hallows. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Pottermore actually has a, a, a nice article on the connections between the two books, some that weren't mentioned here. And then Eric, you have something about the wands. Yeah. Book seven is all about wand lore, which I found off-putting and weird, but it kind of fits when you think about it. And Voldemort and Harry do share a wand core and that is kind of understated, but it's there. Another thing that just roots them to each other. And uh, it, it really, you know, not much else to say except Ollivander got very weird when he gave Harry his wand. I know it wasn't adapted the same way, but it originally takes Harry hundreds of wands before he finds the one that is his. Um, And so, uh, you know, these connections between Voldemort and Harry coming up in books one and seven, also book four with Priori and Cantatum, book four is the midpoint. You know, a lot of this stuff is very well devised i think mm-hmm. and so there's the you know these connections really only serve to illustrate how brilliant of a writer jk rowling is yeah. and even i know we just brought up neville but even harry and neville's stories i thought were really well conceived i mean they harry and neville are effectively like the jesus and john the baptist of the harry potter world That's interesting wherein like either jesus or john could have been the messiah right but it ultimately ended up being Jesus, much in the same way that like either Harry or Neville could have been the chosen one. And it was just Harry because that's mm. who Voldemort picked. And I've read a comment from J.K. Rowling, too, that uh, it was talking about her quotes about her own religion. And she uh, identified as, as Christian, but said that if people knew that she was Christian, they could intuit uh, the end of the Harry Potter series or or, or some very yes. important things. Hmm. Um about Harry and and so his sacrificial journey, this whole Neville John the Baptist thing I've never heard of before, very interesting to me. Yeah, mm. Harry's journey is very much a Christ narrative. Mm. Mm. 
Very much so. Like actually, um, if you compare the that chapter in Deathly Hallows where Harry sort of like quote unquote makes his resurrection, there are a ton of similarities between the way that chapter is written and sort of like the environment that's described and the one that's described in the Bible when Christ is resurrected. It's hmm. really fascinating. Does John, does John Granger write about this? Are there like chapters has. about it that he's written? I don't know. I'm trying to think. I've definitely seen discourse online. So um, check out the HogwartsProfessor.com. We should have uh, Laura Mallory on the show to discuss uh, <laughs> all of this. All of the connections between the Bible and Harry Potter. There Harry Potter is them. wicked. Ms. Mallory. But just think, how would this have sounded? Neville Longbottom and the Sorcerer's Stone. It actually doesn't sound that bad. Yeah, I mean, Harry Potter wasn't exactly the sexiest name at the beginning either, but then it became just cool in pop culture. I was going to say, but now, baby. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just now I think of all those parodies like Harvey Potter and mm-hmm. and Harry Otter and all, all the other books throughout the years that just made fun of exactly that, that Harry Potter is not a sexy name. So we asked on Patreon, do you have any burning questions about Sorcerer's Stone? Any observations that you have made while reading the first book in the Neville Longbottom series. Michael and Caroline both said, I would love to hear your thoughts on the missing 24 hours after baby Harry defeats Voldemort. Have you all heard about this before, you three? Yeah. So, so, so as it turns out, it's not totally apparent, but... I think Steve Vanderark, the owner of the Harry Potter lexicon, was the one who originally discovered this mm-hmm. when he was putting together uh, the Master Harry Potter timeline day by day. Um, he realized that, um, you know, Harry's parents are killed and Hagrid comes and picks up baby Harry and doesn't drop him off at Privet Drive until the next day. Yeah. So the, there's been this question, what happened in that 24 hours? It was at least 12 hours, maybe as much as 24 hours that we don't know about. Now, I will throw in here, J.K. Rowling has admitted previously that she had a hard time with the first chapter of Philosopher's Stone. She said, quote, there were many different versions of the first chapter, and the one I finally settled on is not the most popular thing I've ever written. Lots of people have told me they found it hard work compared with the rest of the book. The trouble with that chapter was I had to give a lot of information, yet conceal even more. There were various versions of scenes in which you actually saw Voldemort entering Godric's Hollow and killing the Potters. In the early drafts of these, a muggle betrayed their whereabouts. As the story evolved, however, and Pettigrew became the traitor, this horrible muggle vanished. So... What's everybody's thoughts on the missing 24 hours? What do you think happened from when Hagrid picked him up to when he dropped him off at Privet Drive? It does make me wonder how long he was there. Like in the before some... in the rubble without food or, yeah. or water. Yeah. Yeah. It could have been a while. I know Steve Vanderark, and I like this idea, speculated that maybe Hagrid took him to the Weasleys, to the burrow. Yeah. Uh. Because you think about what just happened, this terrible, terrible thing happened. You would think Voldemort's followers are still maybe looking for Harry, so they have to hide him somewhere originally. Um, and the the other line of thinking on that was, 
Hagrid doesn't know how to take care of a baby. He needs help. <laughs> and Dumbledore is busy, you know, taking care of stuff. And McGonagall is obviously watching Privet Drive. So maybe he just took him over to the Weasleys or another family's home. I I, th- mm. I would love to see the 24 hours that Hagrid is going from convenience store to convenience store looking for baby formula. I need and <laughs> like fresh and diapers and like, you know, it's like it's it's one man, one giant man and a baby kind of uh, humor. <laughs> right. I, I tend to think that I tend to think that Dumbledore was just setting up the magical I, I mean, McGonagall didn't see him that whole day when she was on the the wall. But I, I tend to think that Dumbledore, while everyone else was out partying, that twenty four hour period, Dumbledore was um, getting getting work done, oh, definitely. like putting in the necessary enchantments to Privet Drive. I I like the idea of the Weasleys, but I don't think that they were a member of the original order. That's oh, right. so you think they don't? Yeah, they were not. Didn't, they didn't know them at that time. Well, they may have known them. The Pruitts were. Uh, Molly's brothers were, I think, Gideon right. and Fabian Pruitt. They were at the very least very gifted, very skilled, uh, and in opposition to Voldemort. This would be a very interesting couple of pages for J.K. Rowling to write and for us to read. I don't think there's a easy answer to this. Maybe Hagrid took him to Hagrid's hut for 10 hours or something. I don't know. <laughs> and I don't have a good answer yeah. for it. I think the only real definitive answer is J.K. Rowling's bad at math. Well, and she's admitted um, that she doesn't have a strong answer yet. Um, she said in another interview that if she went back and looked at her notes, she would see if she could try and figure something out. But, you know, maybe this is something that would have eventually come up in the Harry Potter encyclopedia if that ever happened. But I think Nicholas Flamel showed up and briefly turned Harry into gold, and then he didn't need to eat or sleep for the 24 hours that it took Hagrid to carry him on the motorbike, and then changed him back, and then peaced out. Related to this discussion, Olivia and Megan said, if Harry was only a baby, and both his parents are dead, and Voldemort fled and wasn't really holding a press conference, how does anyone know what actually happened in the house on Halloween night? This is a great question. This is really honestly a good, good, good question. Because even by the very next day, McGonagall has heard these rumors that um, both Lily and James were dead, that when Voldemort turned to Harry, he couldn't do it for some reason. What happened? What happened? We don't know. But people must have gone into the building. I guess Godric's Hollow is a wizarding establishment, so it's nice to know that like word could get out pretty quickly that Lily and James had been killed. But if Harry's not around and Sirius isn't around, then how do they know exactly that Harry himself survived? I think I know what happens. James was actually live streaming on Facebook for the family oh. showing off baby Harry. And that's when Voldemort broke in and James dropped his phone and it you know kept recording. Right. No, there's no... It's it the the McGonagall point is weird, and the fact that other characters heard what happened is weird. From a reader perspective, for us to know makes sense, of course, because J.K. Rowling is telling us. Mm-hmm. Right. I liken this to the end of Sorcerer's Stone when Dumbledore is talking to Harry, and he tells him that what happened between Harry and Quirrell down beneath the school was uh, secretive. So naturally, the whole school knows about it, or I'm paraphrasing, right. but 
I think it's kind of one of those things where where word just it spreads and Eric raised a great point. It, Godric's Hollow is is a magical community. They're going to notice that a house next door is completely obliterated. Uh, and the point about Harry surviving, uh, I would think word of Voldemort's downfall would quickly spread. Somebody knows that Voldemort has has been destroyed, and I think also didn't people weren't people aware of the fact that Voldemort was target targeting either the Potters or some other family. Like it it wasn't as if it was secretive, and so if Voldemort went after the Potters. And and kind of to the point that's being raised by Olivia and Megan, he's not holding a press conference afterwards, right? He or he's not like banging his chest or going around and like killing other people anymore. People are going to notice that. I, I just think it word spread. Yeah. Um. And 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 now that we have crimes of Grindelwald to thank for the invention of this time powder that Newt uses and scatters on the ground to see what happened, you know, twelve hours prior. Um. If anybody in Godric's Hollow had any of that time powder, maybe Newt popped by, gave him some of it, and uh, you could easily see all variety of magical beasts that were there in the room when the Lee and James died, and yeah. uh, the feather in the cap of Voldemort when he fled. So, All right. Uh, next question is from Nicole asks, how did Dudley's tail get removed? I know we we know they went to London to a doctor or something, but did he have to have surgery? Is there still a scar? My headcanon has always been that they actually ended up at St. Mungo's <laughs> or someone from Magical Reversal Squad snuck into a muggle hospital to remove it with magic. Huh. I always... I would say the Magical Reversal Squad snuck in and fixed it and then wiped everybody's memories. Oh. I mean, I, I think they, I think they have medical bills. I think they actually just had to get it like lanced mm-hmm. off. Um, yeah, I think they probably had to go to like a dermatologist or something for like weird skin growths. Yeah, you don't think the wizards could have done it? I think there was a claim to be filed. <laughs> I think they absolutely could have been like, Albus Dumbledore sent his big giant lackey to mutate our son, like give us some peace of mind here and fix it. They absolutely would have taken care of it. But I think the the Dursleys still very much preferred to operate in the Muggle world and with all mm-hmm. variety of normal things. So I it strikes me as being true that they would find a normal solution like hacking it off, um, you know, and prefer that to more magic on their son. Can you imagine being that person going to a Muggle doctor with a pigtail <laughs> and being like, I need this off. And the doctor's like, what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some kind of fusion of DNA too. Like D- Dudley is for some somehow like a porcine hybrid now. Um, you know, maybe that affects his later choice. <laughs> he already was before. I then. know. I know. That's that's <laughs> the joke, isn't it? That he's already so close to a pig. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But he comes full circle in a very small way uh, by the end of the series. I, I just really like the fact that the Dursley's child now is potentially scarred by magic. He's, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's a scar in his butt. <laughs> and that's totally something he would complain about every day. And his parents would hear about it every day. And the Durs, uh, Vernon and Petunia would hate Harry even more, I think, because of that. Yeah. Hate Harry even more. For sure. All right. And, and finally, Kimberly says, something I've always wanted to know, when a muggle-born child is accepted into a wizarding school, how is their absence from the previous muggle school explained? I guess you just say he's going off to a private school, right? Yeah, moved away. Make up a name. Didn't they, 
didn't they tell people that they were sending him to like correctional school or yes. some kind of school for like deviant children? Yeah. St. Brutus's, right? Oh, yeah. But that was for Harry, who the Dursleys hated. What What about like Hermione's parents? Mm. I think. I, guess... I don't know. For her. I feel like isn't boarding school fairly common in the UK? Like, I don't think it would be that far out of the realm of possibility especially her parents are dentists right so they've got to be fairly well off yeah yeah i think for hermione too it's private school yeah it just it's it's handled a little delicately you know it's um i think it's an individual case by case basis sort of thing it is a fair question by kimberly though because if you think about it though it's not just how their absence is explained from whatever school they may have attended previously it's what about when they start making friends at this school? I'm sure they have friends from growing up. Do those friends ever interact with each other? Do they ever meet? Oh, what did you take at this school that you're going to? You know, it's not like they can really integrate much or interact much with maybe friends or family that had known them prior to going to Hogwarts. It's a little, it's a little weird, no? Yeah. And then what happens when you graduate Hogwarts? And you're like not going to university. Mm-hmm. You're going into the wizarding world and you have a job as like an auror or something like that. And you can't tell people what you do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like people who work for the government. I have a cousin whose husband works for the government. They can't tell us what they do. Yeah. And it's like, well, this is awkward because you're family <laughs> and you work some mysterious job. What the hell? Tell us. We're family. It's because they're listening to your phone calls, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then not to mention, like, you lose these friends who you made in your earlier years. And that's kind of sad. What if you really liked these people? Yeah. You can't really keep up with them. For sure. All right. Well, that concludes our discussion for the week. Lots of interesting information. Don't you love Harry Potter? There's always so much to talk about. (laughs) Yep. Even in book one, some people have said you should restart chapter by chapter completely. I kind of agree after that discussion. To be honest with you, I wouldn't be against it. Let's poll our listeners. We have 38. We have we have 38 (laughs) weeks of uh, book five to get through. Uh, So, you know, we'll investigate that when we can. Yeah, it's just. It's just awkward if we go into book five and then go back to the, the beginning. But then after once we after if we decided to do chapter by chapter again, I guess we would do Order of the Phoenix, then go back to Sorcerer's Stone and then stick with the order. <laughs> go in order from there on out. Maybe. I don't know. I like the idea of doing complete opposite books on the on the ring composition on the. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Four and 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 yeah whatever it is our poor heads we get confused enough with movieisms. then we're gonna be like <laughs> getting confused with the timelines yeah. no four you have to do with cursed child oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that's, that's actually that's true you should do chapter by chapter for cursed child scene by scene i think well it works because the whole cedric diggory yeah or amos diggory storyline mm-hmm. absolutely so on next week's episode we are going to finally complete our sorcerer's stone chapter by chapter series the last time we did a chapter by chapter for Sorcerer's Stone was June 4th, 2006. Oh my God. 13 years later, the Muggle <laughs> Casters are wrapping it up. I think we've got next week's episode title too. <laughs> did we ever uh, listen to figure out 
what it was that prevented us from wrapping up the book? Well, I think we may have joked about this on a recent episode. The next episode is titled Andrewless, and I think that's what happened. You guys just lost control without me. I think that was and... the first episode I edited, maybe hosted. That was fun. You know, I think we're going to have to redo chapter by chapter because if we did it in 2006, doesn't that mean that we didn't we <gasps> did chapter by chapter of Sorcerer's Stone before yes. Deathly Hallows was released? Yeah. Yeah. Oh crap. Yep. It's a great point. Oof. All right guys, hope you're hope you're buckling in. We're undoing <laughs> all of our plans right now. <laughs> <laughs> but first, Quizich. <laughs> Last week's Quizich question was what time does the Hogwarts Express depart from King's Cross Station? The same place that Rowling's parents met. And the answer, of course, is 11 a.m., 11 o'clock on the dot. Uh, We want to thank and congratulate all of the people who submitted the correct answer over Twitter. We did get an email entry uh, for Quizich, which also had the correct answer. And the person asked, uh, um, is this where I submit Quizich? So the one time we don't mention that it is through Twitter, we start getting emails about it. It is on Twitter. Congratulations to Robbie Stillman, Ryan Nolan, Issy Marcantonio, Tori Flyin' Ford Anglia, Joe Tyner, M.E.D., Corgian, Fluffy McNutters, Sarah, a.k.a. Weensy, Tara, Incessant Bookworm, Ali Frega, Matthew Two Beers. Okay, it's like 9.30 a.m. Mev, Janifler, Jen Rain, My Life as a Muggle, Stacey Davis, Count Ravioli, and Sarah Davis uh, all got the correct answer. And there is not a Quizits question right now for this week, um, because we're actually doing next week's episode in five or ten minutes from now. <laughs> so uh, instead, over the course of the next week, when you're listening to this episode, try and submit uh, to us via email. This is going to get really confusing. Your potential Quizits question for future installments of Quizits. And anytime we have an off week where we don't do chapter by chapter, or even while we're doing book five, It'll help me come up with questions to ask you guys on this segment. So submit those to us over at MuggleCast at gmail.com. And when Quizich comes back, play it on Twitter at reply MuggleCast and hashtag Quizich. All right. If you would like to get in touch with us, visit MuggleCast.com. We have the contact form, right? Uh, a link to the contact form right at the top of the page. You can also just email MuggleCast at gmail.com or call us one nine two zero three muggle also, a reminder, two days left, if you're listening on Monday, to sign up to receive the MuggleCast tote bag and signed album art. We would love your support. And to thank you for supporting us, we're going to hook you up with not one, but two physical items. And we can't wait to start getting those bags out. It'll be fun to see everybody receiving them and, and using them and helping save the environment yeah. and zippering up their contents. And carrying around Harry Potter books and jars of pickles. <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> nice. Don't forget to follow us on social media as well. Our username is MuggleCast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You'll get highlights from each episode. You'll get previews of upcoming episodes. You'll get behind-the-scenes looks. And you'll get other engaging content. Sometimes we do polls and share some good stuff. So check that out. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.